When you think about business competition, where are you focused? Your town, your state, across the country? You need to be concerned with competitors around the world. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today, you'll hear about the mega trends in global business and how they affect your organization, as well as explore issues, solutions, and some amazing facts about business worldwide. Now, here is your host, Mahesh Joshi. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. This is part two of the episode, Blockchain. Everything, everybody wants to know about blockchain and one must know. Paul is the host for the episode. He's an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Northeastern University and University of California at Berkeley. He's a successful entrepreneur and has sold three companies and taken a company public. He's a CEO of Startup Strategies where he works with startups in their go-to-market strategies and with large companies on their innovation initiatives. Over to Paul. Hello, this is your host, R. Paul Singh, for a second session on everything you wanted to know about blockchain. And uh, probably afraid to ask, but uh, here we are not. And we're going to ask those questions uh, from our Two speakers, very distinguished speakers, as you probably heard from them last time. And if you haven't, I strongly suggest please go back and listen to the first part of this session as well. Uh, so let me welcome Jordan Woods and Radhika Inger. Um, both of them are very distinguished uh, um, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. They've, you know, 30 plus years of combined experience with multiple exits. And uh, and, you know, being invited speakers at Google, Stanford, TEDx, and so many other conferences. And they are also um, almost done with their book on blockchain, which also we'll talk about today. Um, so let me start by welcoming uh, both of them. So Jordan and Radhika, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, so I think, um, you know, we started talking last time a little bit about blockchain and, you know, what it is, which is basically we said it's kind of similar to an accounting ledger, only it records transactions across a vast network and is decentralized and immutable. Um, and so meaning it doesn't, and also doesn't have any central authority to oversee it, which is where a lot of us see some new potentials. Um, and you guys started talking a little bit about different applications and use cases. So why don't you please, um, uh, one of you summarize this first, um, all the use cases we talked about, and then the ones that we didn't get chance to talk about, let's uh, go uh, tackle them. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to state that uh, regarding the book, which is um, hopefully coming out next month, um, you'll be excited to know that a lot of the use cases that we discussed not only last time in the previous session, but also in this uh, session will be covered in our book. So stay tuned uh, for more on that book and it, it will cover pre predominantly enterprise blockchain use cases. Um, and uh, that we'll be putting that out on social media. So watch for that. Uh, but in order to recap uh, for last uh, session, uh, Jordan, did you want to do the recap? And then I can jump in with the, some of the other use cases for this time. Yeah, sure. So last time we talked uh, a bit about the um, fintech use cases or in, in, the, um, 
you know, financial services and in banking. Uh, that's really where blockchain started. And so there are a number of very good use cases, especially when it comes to cross-border uh, transactions like we talked about, as well as in reconciliation. Um, and so we, we talked quite a bit about that. And then Radhika, you spoke uh, quite a bit about use cases with um, supply chain and high value uh, luxury goods. So it would be uh, great if uh, you could just keep going, Radhika, and, and uh, talk about a few more. Great, um, so yeah, um, we did cover supply chain and, and that's actually a great segue because in opening up uh, some of the use cases in healthcare, which is a sector that I do a lot of work in, uh, we see a lot of supply chain as initial uh, use cases. When you look at where the traction is happening in healthcare, it's a pretty exciting area. The earlier use cases that we're seeing are more non-patient information related. So uh, if you think about supply chain in pharmaceutical, um, in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, the track and trace, uh, figuring out the origin and, and figuring out where the uh, prescription drug is actually manufactured and then tracking that across the supply chain and into the hands of the consumer. That's one of the use cases. It doesn't have anything to do with patient information, but um, that's tracking the movement of that prescription drug along the supply chain and logistics chain. Um, and that's a huge, huge uh, area of, of uh, concentration right now because we're solving a global counterfeit drugs problem. It's about $200 billion worth, as I think we mentioned that last time. So we're seeing a lot of uh, great traction on that front. Um, and then there's some regulatory uh, tailwind um, in the U.S. as well as abroad. Um, Radhika, isn't that, uh, so Radhika, I have a question for you. I mean, this kind of seems very similar to the supply, uh, uh, you know, supply chain uh, logistics uh, problem uh, just applied to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Or is there yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Um, it is very similar in nature because you're trying to establish the provenance and, and you know, authenticity of that prescription drug. Um, obviously, the use case in terms of figuring out what's counterfeit is also very similar. I would say the, the biggest difference, obviously, in terms of uh, why this is so critically important and why the regulatory uh, bodies like FDA and so on, are, are, are interested in seeing this um, being tra uh, traced and proving the authenticity of prescription drugs is because consumer safety is at, uh, in play, right? So when you, when you have, um, for example, uh, any goods that you're trying to track, it's, there's no real question of consumer safety involved. There's obviously authenticity, and consumers want to make sure they have the authentic product. But here, it's not just having the authentic product, it's making sure that the drug is safe because what happens with these um, fake drugs is that they're laced with uh, bad things, let's just see it at that, lethal uh, substances, which have caused, caused not only illnesses, but deaths. And so when you think about all of the uh, problems with that, we, you know, we really need to make sure that that track and trace it is yeah. secure along the supply chain. And so there's the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, which was passed in 2013, which is requiring all the pharmaceutical manufacturers to be compliant with that by 2023. And part of that compliance is basically making these companies sit back and, and, and look at that supply chain problem and saying, we need to work together 
as a whole industry to come together and making sure that we have industry standards that we are adhering to. So there's a regulatory tailwind involved because consumer safety is what, what's at stake here. And this is not just here, it's globally as well. And, and the World Health Organization has identified this area as one of those critically important areas in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, um, so let's, let's kind of move away from, so talking about healthcare and other, you yeah, know, I'll just say that, you know, I'll just say before we leave healthcare, that these are some of the earlier use cases, as I mentioned, where we don't have patient information involved. So there's other things like provider credentialing, um, you know, such as medical claims billing, et cetera. So these are some of those areas that are also critical, uh, you know, to the functioning of this ecosystem. Some of the uh, patient-related uh, use cases are coming down the line. I know it, it, we'll probably see those in the next few years coming up. And those will be more um, in, in terms of providing a much more personalized uh, care of, of uh, health care delivery to the consumers and to, to, to us, right? And so personalized medicine, personalized health care, this is something that's really coming in, and, and that's going to involve a lot more work that needs to be done on the patient identity side of things. So there's some additional things that we have to work on. So I'll just say that before we, we move away from healthcare. So do you think, um, can we say sometime our, uh, you know, electronic health record system might actually be changed uh, using blockchain? Well, it's not so much the health record that's going to be changed. The main thing will be ownership of that data because right now in healthcare we don't own our own data we might have access to it because of HIPAA regulations that we have access to our own records they might provide a copy of that but most of the time when we get a copy of our record they're going to give us a printout of something and so they're you know we're not going to be able to see those kinds of things uh, it's not so much the record itself that is changing it's mostly going to be the fact that we are going to have ownership of our own record Right now, with us not owning our own record, what's happening is that a lot of different companies are monetizing our de-identified data. Uh, They will aggregate that data and then sell it for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, The the per record value per person is astronomical in healthcare. Uh, You're talking tens of thousands of dollars per record. And Mm -hmm. so uh, some of that monetization really... uh, it will, will, will in essence come back to us because we will have the right to share, you know, with whom, when, for how long, it, to what extent, all of these things, we call it selective disclosure. And so those are some of those things that are going to come up that are going to be uh, really changing the industry in terms of how uh, it relates to us as people that are interacting with healthcare. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we have a couple of minutes left for the session. So I just wanted to um, come back to you guys and say, you know, talk about any other applications that we haven't covered yet or any use cases that are emerging or are already, you know, uh, well along the path of execution. Sure. Maybe I'll jump in here. So there's actually um, quite a few uh, use cases in, in government. Uh, they have to do with identity. Um, and there's also anything that has to do with records. Uh, so it could be um, land records, which is actually quite popular uh, right now in, in terms of blockchain solutions in India, but also in much of the developing world. And then uh, that can also be titling for vehicles, vehicle registration. Um, and then 
there is e-government, so there's all the different services that, that governments provide. Um, another very big area is in uh, the power sector, so electricity, and there are a number of different use cases um, that have to do with peer-to-peer -peer trading of electricity, especially when you're dealing with renewables and renewable um, sources like solar or wind. Um, in these cases, often you can have um, individuals or, or small companies that could own solar panels. Uh, so it's not like, you know, a, a coal-fired power station, which is like some massive, you know, huge entity that costs billions of dollars. Uh, these can be, you know, very small systems. And so they tend to be very decentralized. And so uh, blockchain is very good with these decentralized systems in terms of uh, being able to get the identity of the, the person or group that is generating the power, mm -hmm. um, authenticate it, give it an audit trail. Um, if it's renewable energy, you can get renew renewable energy credits, and there needs to be a way to prove that this is renewable energy because once you have electrons that are in the, uh, in the grid, they don't, they're all the same. Right? It doesn't say this is green energy, it's just another electron. And so you have to be able to go back and get the origin of that uh, electricity. And there are cases where people you know, have claimed that they were generating solar energy at night. Um, and you know, through time stamping, et cetera, you can prove that mm -hmm. no, that is not. Uh, it may be green, maybe it's from wind or something else, but it's definitely not solar power uh, because of the time stamp. So there are ways with the audit trail to prove that the electricity is uh, renewable energy. And then you can do peer-to-peer -peer trading, uh, just as you would do with anything else. The uh, typical trading in energy has very long settlement times. They can no, be no, no. Um, I, I'm uh, going to have to uh, cut sure. you off because we are done with this section and we're going to take a commercial break and then we'll be back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is uh, your host, R. Paul Singh, again. Uh, we have two guests today, Jordan Woods and Radhika Iyengar, uh, both experts in blockchain. And we have been talking to them about various use cases of blockchain. And um, I thought uh, maybe we should think about the issues that uh, people are facing. You know, blockchain, uh, I don't know how many years old the technology is. And at one level, it should have taken over the world, but it hasn't yet. And there are some technology challenges and there are some non-technology challenges. Um, so in my research, I came across lots of things. So I thought I'll ask the experts and get their opinion on as to what they think about it. Um, so the first thing I like you guys to address, which is a very common known problem, that blockchain is slow. Right. This is kind of a common uh, thing that people talk about, uh, that the amount of processing, the legacy transaction processing systems can handle, you know, tens to thousands of transactions per second. But uh, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin blockchain can only handle three to seven, while Ethereum, which is sort of another coin, um, is as low as 15 transactions per second. So. What do you think is going to happen? Where does this go? And is this a real problem? And if so, how is that going to be overcome? Yeah, maybe I'll uh, get us kicked off uh, with regards to throughput and scalability. So if you look at the public chains, public chains, because most of the actors in them um, are what are known as um, anonymous or pseudonymous, players means you don't know who you're transacting with necessarily. So Jordan, um, before yeah. you go there, I, I want to, I want to interrupt you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what's a public blockchain versus a private blockchain? Because I was going to ask that later on, but I think this is probably the right time to talk about it because these are related topics. So just explain a little bit about what they are before you uh, answer that question. Yeah, so there are two main types of blockchains. Um, one, which is well known in terms of the cryptocurrencies, and um, they usually run on what is known as a public chain. A public chain is where the nodes that make up the network um, that decentralizes the uh, all the nodes that, that create this decentralized network, the different uh, nodes can be run by any kind of entity, and the identity of that entity is not known. So that doesn't mean it can't be figured out, but in order to run a node, there is no requirement 
that your identity is presented to any kind of uh, authority, centralized, decentralized, or otherwise. And so, you know, really any, any entity can run a node, and the only thing you know about them is their address. Um, and that is some long hexadecimal uh, value, which doesn't really give you very much information, except um, that's who they are um, from the point of view of a number. And so that's what makes their identity pseudonymous. The difference with the permission chain is that you need to be invited, you need to be given permission to join that chain. And so as a result, because there is permission granted to someone, that entity, be it a person or usually uh, a company, or it could be an organization like a government, um, is known. And further, usually you go through uh, a Know Your Customer, which is known as KYC AML Anti-Money Laundering, or KYC AML, review, which ensures that the entity that is joining the permission chain is, um, hasn't been engaged in any kind of illegal activities. And so this means that the different nodes become what are called trusted nodes. They are known. Uh, the identities of all the nodes are known. And all the people within the permission chain are aware of the identities of all of the other actors, all of the other nodes within that network. There isn't anyone who will be transacting there that isn't known and has not gone through these KYC AML. So there, a private network uh, where, in the private uh, network where I know everybody on my network that I let in versus a public network like the internet where almost anybody can come in unless and until I put a permissioning system in place. I Correct. Think I to main, make a small distinction, Paul, uh, which is, again, a very important distinction. People mm. call them private networks, <laughs> but they really aren't private networks. A private network is one where it's just within one company. That's yeah. a private network. And one might argue that that private network really isn't a blockchain at all because it's just one entity. The very nature of blockchain networks is that it's across different identities. The difference between the permissioned and public networks, so the public networks is at large, like Jordan mentioned, with these pseudonymous nodes on the network, but the permissioned network is what we're talking about that most enterprise is participating in, and this is where the nodes are trusted nodes, therefore their identity is known. But I wanted to make that distinction because a lot of people jump to, you know, jump to that nomenclature of public versus private, and there really isn't, by definition, that's not accurate to say it's a private network because a private network is within an organization. It should be called a permission network versus an open network. Universe. Correct. Yeah, public it's permission versus, versus permissionless. So yeah. in a permissionless network, there's no permission required. You just need to uh, download you know, some source code and, and follow some protocol and procedures and you can take part in that network versus a permissioned, you can you know, have the requisite equipment, but you're not invited, or you fail the checks that are required in order to participate. 
Um, typically in permission networks as well, because they're often used with businesses. In a, an enterprise environment, if you go to any enterprise, there are different roles. There's uh, the sense of security and privacy and permissioning is something that anybody that runs an IT network within um, or across uh, enterprises would understand very well. And so much of that, um, much of those requirements around privacy and confidential information and who has access to what, so who has the permission to see what types of information is something that is very prevalent mm -hmm. within a permission network, whereas a, a key attribute of a public or permissionless is that everyone has equal access to all the information and they're completely transparent. Uh -huh. and, and that's one of these types of um, capabilities that many people in public networks see as very critical, that the network is completely transparent, that there is no distinction uh, mm -hmm. between any of the nodes and what they can see. And that is not something that is shared in a permission network where you know often any two players may be seeing completely different sets of information um, just because of their uh, because of their access rights okay so so we understand that part let's let me you know because I think we got away from the main topic sure we have only a few minutes left in this session ah. I want to come back to uh, you talking about okay so blockchains are slow so therefore where do we go from here yeah so so one thing is in these public networks because you don't know anybody um, there is a big premium placed on security and so these systems are very slow because there is overhead associated with uh, security and so you usually have to go through like for example proof of work is this very uh, complex operation and it's very time consuming and it slows down the consensus to to reach agreement on what is the next block in the chain however in a permission network because you're dealing with trusted nodes you do not have this same premium and so exactly. typically you'll have what are called crash fault tolerant or byzantine fault tolerant types of algorithms which can actually run uh, on the order of a few hundred to a few thousand and up to as many as 10,000 transactions per second. So the... So how do they compare to the, uh, to the current uh, systems where people are still able to do, you know, thousands of yes. transactions per second? So how do they compare? Yeah, so it matters what, because some networks, like if you look at something like PayPal, PayPal is running at probably four to 600 transactions per second. Um, so if you were running uh, with Hyperledger Fabric, for example, at 1,500 transactions per second, you could run something like a PayPal. Obviously, you can't run something like that um, if you were using a Bitcoin or Ethereum network. If you're running Visa, Visa usually runs at thousands, maybe a few tens of thousands at the holiday season. It might run as much as 40 to 60,000 transactions per second. There are no blockchain networks that are well-known there are claims that there are blockchain networks that can also, um, you know, deal with can can have that type of throughput, but the the question comes down to a trade-off between security and speed. So often, if you are getting those very high transaction levels, 
you're no longer very secure. And as a result, the immutability of, and, and the security of your system comes into question, which then comes down to, well, do you really need a blockchain, right? Because you're just trying to get speed. Maybe you just go for speed and you're not trying to be secure and immutable and all these things. I think so Jordan, um, um, I'm going to come back in the next uh, section hmm. and really touch a little bit on the security because there have been enough security breaches that people have been talking about it. Right, so, and it brings up an important... Yeah, so I'm going to come back uh, in about, uh, you know, uh, after this commercial break, uh, we'll, we'll sure. pick up the topic. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. Get a unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, then tune in to the Tech Cat Show Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Well, we are back. Um, We're talking about blockchain and it's different applications, and we started talking about uh, the permission versus uh, non-permission blockchains and how the different issues come up in terms of um, security and permissioning and performance. And we were just having this conversation with two experts here, Jordan Woods and Radhika Inger, 
Um, so I want to welcome them back into this session and probably uh, start from where we left off, which is, um, you know, we were talking about the security issues and mm-hmm. they were saying that there is a trade-off between um, security and the performance. And so I want to give them the mic and talk a little bit about these issues and walk us through um, how we go about it. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, so I think what's what's really important to start off when we talk about security and, and throughput or speed, one thing to bear in mind is it's the, the, the purpose of blockchain. So, you know, the internet was, as we mentioned in the last session, was not created with security in its mind, right? And it was, it was for open communication. The communication protocol, TCPIP, was really intended on sharing information, and, and we've certainly experienced the uh, versatility of that technology. Um, blockchain, on the other hand, is, has been more so focused on the security of transactions, right? And so when you think about how we're accomplishing that with these networks, what I want to underscore is that contrary to what people might think in, in the permissioned uh, networks, they're more than adequate to deal with the uh, speed that is required for transactions. So as Jordan was pointing out, it, you know, if we wanted to run a PayPal on a permissioned network, you could do that very easily because the transaction speeds, if you will, or the speed, the, the throughput um, in a PayPal network is several hundred, and that's more than adequate for what a permission network can provide. Uh-huh. It's when you start talking about large volumes of transactions for in a consumer world, like a Visa or a MasterCard at peak holiday times where you're having these tens of thousands, as Jordan pointed out, 40 to 60,000 uh, transactions per second, that's the kind of level where we're still not there yet in terms of maturity of technology. The other point that I wanted to make is that let's remember that this technology is in early days. So if you think about the internet and where we're sitting right now and Web 2.0 technology, we've spent decades getting here, right? So in the early days of the internet, as you remember, in the early days of Web 2.0, we didn't enjoy the kinds of speeds and, and you know, instantaneous things. We, were, we had all kinds of limitations. We had motives slow. Right? Was, there were limitations to that technology that we had to overcome to be able to achieve the kind of speed that we are enjoying today. So it's taken a while for us to get there. So I think I'd love for the readers, I mean, for the audience to keep that in mind, saying with a a, a technology, any new technology, there is uh, a maturation process that has to occur. So we are still in early days with this technology. This is a nascent technology. We have to get to that next level, which is the, faster throughput that we are uh, having. And when do you about. think we will get that? What is, what is the likely, what, are, what is coming on the horizon that makes you believe that it will happen soon? Well, I think the permission networks, as I said, um, are really more than adequate for what we need to have in enterprise. So that, on the one hand, we're already there in terms of, of being able to deal with that. I think when you talk, talk about consumer-facing technology and consumer-facing applications, we're going to see, you know, I would say two to three years at least before things can actually get up to speed to the levels that we might want to see. And maybe a little bit more than that. It just depends on how quickly things can evolve. But I would say that 
it is going to happen, but we're going to have to be patient with it. And um, we're going to get, get past that uh, hurdle uh, at some point in the near future. So Radhika, one of the um, points uh, that we left off in the last session, which, you know, there, despite all the talk about security and all that, there have been, uh, you know, hacks that people have been able to break mm-hmm. into some blockchain systems and all. Um, so is it really that secure a system? And if so, you know, why mm-hmm. is that people are still able to hack? Jordan, you want to you jump in on that one? Because that's an exciting one. Yeah. So if you look at most of the systems that are being hacked, they're actually the centralized systems. So like exchanges or, or wallets, it's not actually the blockchains themselves. And if they are the blockchains, they're actually small ones um, where there's not really um, a lot of nodes. And so the smaller the system, so if you look at like a um, something like a Bitcoin or, or an Ethereum, type of network, they have thousands and thousands of nodes. And the standard attack that people make on these systems is what's called a 51% attack. That means you have to take over 51% of the nodes, and then you can reach a different consensus than what would normally happen because you you control the network in in essence. There's other kinds of attacks, but those are the this is the kind that is the most brutal, but it's also very expensive because um, the uh, amount of equipment and money that you would have to put up to have these sustained attacks means that you are spending millions and millions of dollars to sustain these attacks. Um, And the thing is, is since about 2011, the Bitcoin network has not been hacked, even though it's worth billions and billions of dollars, 100 billion, for example. So Jordan, uh, you make an interesting point, which I think will I like to just make sure that, uh, you know, this is what you're saying. So you're saying yeah. the security, you know, in a normal internet world, the less the nodes, the more secure it is. But mm. in blockchain, it's the opposite. The larger the no- number of nodes, the more secure it gets because it takes a lot more resources to break it because you have to achieve that 51% consensus to be able to change something. Yes. You have to go to many more nodes. So this this is kind of a really unique distinction, which is an interesting thing in favor of blockchain that uh, these networks tend to get uh, secure as more nodes come online, while uh, in the regular internet world, as more nodes come online, you are definitely going to have more problems. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so the decentralization allows for much greater scaling. Mm-hmm. The, the issue that you have with the uh, you know, proof-of-work-oriented chains like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum that you have right now is that all of those nodes are acting as a single computer. They're not acting as different computers. And so what you need to do is, is you need to move to something that's called sharding, where you break the network up into smaller pieces and you run them in parallel. And this enables you to get higher throughput and more scalability. That's one of the scaling Mm -hmm. solutions. There's a whole bunch of them. There's not enough time to go through all the different solutions. But what you do get within many of these permission networks is you do get um, these kinds of parallelization or sharding. And that is something that leads to the higher throughput that you see, not just the fact that you have less intensive consensus protocols. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Radhika had talked about, there's definitely roadmaps for getting 1,000 or even Mm 10,000x 
increase in throughput um, and the, the path is there. But in order to work through the issues to maintain security, you cannot just turn these on overnight. They actually take a few years to work through. You have all these thousands of nodes that have to take part in this testing. And so it's time consuming. And then when you find problems, you have to then obviously correct them and then roll out. And that's actually happening across all the major um, blockchain networks, both so on, and um, I want to move away from this issue to talk a little bit about a favorite topic that you know a lot of readers have on their mind. And I, I kind of know what your answer will probably be. But uh, rather than speculating, I'm going to ask the question first, uh, which is that, you know, the current uh, Bitcoin, which is what most of us really know blockchain form <laughs> as, uh, you know, consumes by various estimates almost 0.2% uh, of the global electricity bill per year. And um, so obviously that's, that's a huge problem. And I mean, I know maybe in permission network that may not be a problem. I, I That's what I'm expecting you to tell me. Um, but is that you see that as a problem and do you see some solutions uh, to that problem coming in? Yeah, maybe I'll just start out very quickly. So the, the algorithm, the consensus algorithm that's being used is called proof of work. And because what you're, what you're basically doing is, is you're turning electricity into a coin uh, mm-hmm. or a token. And so the, because you are uh, in essence turning electricity into a token, through a complex process, it does burn a lot of electricity, and, and that's the way it works. Um, there is something in the public side called proof of stake, which actually doesn't rely on burning a lot of electricity, and it's, it's very lightweight, and they're really, if, if it were turned on, and this is actually what's happening with Ethereum right now, and, and a lot of other tokens are moving to this on the public side, What's important, though, to realize is that on the permission side, you don't have proof of work. You don't have this kind of algorithm running. And so all of the enterprise uh, blockchain solutions, the computing power for consensus is very fast. It's a very quick process, especially because they want very low latency. They don't want this 10-minute time frame that you have with uh, Bitcoin. You want to have latency on the order of seconds, and mm-hmm. so they're very fast uh, protocols to run and uh, and reach consensus. So the amount of electricity once we move to a proof of stake world, or you have mostly permission chains, or a combination of those two, is going to be far far less than what you have in a uh, a, a proof of work world. So there is hope. Basically, well, to recap, it's really the proof of work mm-hmm. algorithm that is so energy consumptive. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, so um, we are going to uh, take a break here, and we'll be back in a few seconds, and uh, we will uh, take it from there. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Well, um, this is your host, uh, Arpal Singh, back uh, for a the episode we are doing part two on the uh, podcast about everything you wanted to know about blockchain. And we have two experts uh, with us uh, today, uh, Radhika Iyengar and Jordan Wood. Uh, Woods. And so we've been talking with them about uh, different aspects of the blockchain and the criticism that also has been levied against it. Um, I want to talk a little bit in this section first about a term called ICO, which is initial coin offering. It was like a really hot thing in, you know, about a few years ago when every startup was saying, hey, this is the only way I'm going to raise money and I'm never going to go raise money from the traditional guys. And so obviously that fizzled out. So I'd like to kind of get your thought on what ICO was and why it fizzled out. And do you even think that that's a good idea that um, people should still pursue ICOs. Sure, I'll uh, take a stab at that. Um, so, you know, ICOs were were a pretty exciting phenomenon, as as you pointed out. And 2017 was certainly the the high point of ICOs. And um, I'd lo- just like to say that you know it fizzled out here in the U.S. Uh, as well as in certain other areas of the world because of uh, regulatory concerns. And so here in the U.S., for example, the SEC was was particularly uh, concerned about the fact that these ICOs were uh, 
a way to raise money prior to, to developing the product, prior to developing a network. And so the emphasis was on the uh, potential of what you could do rather than having something real to show for it. And so from a regulatory perspective, what was really at risk was the fact that, number one, the network isn't being built out. And so what you're doing is having people pull in money um, to create something. And so that, by nature of what that is, is more like a security. And so the other part is that if you haven't built out the network and then you're basically promising that this token is going to grow, go up in value, now that also makes it a security. And so the whole phenomenon of ICOs, having anybody participate in an ICO, uh, really came into question. And, and the SEC said, well, no, it's really going to have to be with accredited investors that can participate in this, as we've always had it. Um, since the 1933 and 1934 acts in the Securities Exchange Commission. So what we really have to look at from the security uh, acts standpoint is that A, the network has to be built out. It's not something that you're going to be raising money to do. Uh, And so there is no um, uh, uh, value in, in just raising money to be able to create the network uh, from from a security standpoint. And the other is that you really have to have uh, the token not be going up in value that's not the promise of something increasing in value that also is something that that critically means it's up so it should be a good news right um well it's a you know i think for, for from our standpoint i think that it again it comes back to the whole raising money uh question and and ultimately we are of the belief that you really do want to raise money with people that were are going to be the right kind of uh investors so the smart money question still comes up and we think it's still very uh, much more preferred to doing something at large. I mean, there are crowdfunding sort of mechanisms, but those are more limited in, in how much you can raise through those mechanisms. Right. And so those mechanisms still do exist, but at much smaller amounts. So for larger amounts, we still are are of the belief that smart money and smart investors really have greater value uh, from a fundraising perspective. So, so is it uh, fair to assume that your recommendation is in today's market, even though you could raise ICO in certain countries, but you mm-hmm. don't advise the entrepreneurs who are starting companies in the U.S. and also want to get more capital from the U.S. to not go on that path anymore? Yeah, I think that it, you know. I think at this point, that's our recommendation. We'd rather see uh, companies that are really intending on raising money in the U.S. and particularly here in Silicon Valley. Our traditional methods of, of fundraising still are pretty viable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and from a from a smart money perspective, absolutely. And because what you're getting for that smart money is not something that you're going to get through an ICO, right? You're still getting a lot of know-how and mm-hmm. and networks and support in different ways that a good investor that you want to align yourself for the long haul um, is still going to be able to provide you. So um, I'm going to switch the topic a little bit. I know that you guys are been working on a book for a while. So maybe love to hear a little bit about uh, what the book is about. And Sure. Um, so the uh, topic of our book is enterprise blockchain. Um, we are definitely looking at all of the use cases that we've discussed, some of which we've discussed on these segments with you, Paul. 
but we're also looking at how the the whole roadmap of deployment is taking place. Uh, where are the opportunities? How do you navigate those opportunities? And it's really meant for not only executives at companies that are looking at this technology saying, how am I going to use this and where do I start? But also with uh, CEOs and founders of companies, uh, of startups, looking at where the opportunities and, and the uh, uh, real uh, upsides are going to be. The other thing that we wanted to mention about our book is that um, it's not just our content that's in the book. We've got about 20-odd interviews with industry leaders and business leaders, and so that adds a lot of value as well because these uh, interview transcripts are also included in the book, and um, I think that's going to be pretty exciting for anybody reading the book. What's the focus of the book? Is it for is it meant for engineers? Is it meant for business people, or is it uh, who, who is it targeted at? Jordan, you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, it, it's primarily focused uh, at a business audience, but it does have some technical underpinnings. So there is justification. So it's not high level in, in terms of, you know, the technical aspects. We do have some sections which are more technical. So a more technical person could read those specifically around platforms. So there is a lot of depth to the book, but really the focus is as many of the interviews actually discuss and, and we discuss in the book, the biggest challenges people have right now are not so much on the technical side. They're much more on how do competitors and ecosystems work together. And so, yes, there are some technical challenges to that, but just that concept of how do you work with your competitor or your competition or you know uh, aspects of the network that you haven't uh, thought about before, those business challenges are, are the biggest issues because it's a total paradigm shift. So we really focus on a lot of those. The big I, the interoperability problem. Mm, yeah. Well, okay. for sure. Uh, so I think uh, before we wrap up uh, this podcast, and you know, you guys have been amazing, and uh, you know, I'm sure our audience would uh, love all the information that you've given, and uh, you know, we all look forward to getting your book whenever it is available and I'm sure you will uh, provide it on your social media and other feeds. Yes. Uh, so before wrapping yes. up, uh, I got about 30 seconds left. Uh, so any closing thoughts um, folks before we uh, close this podcast? I think there's, there's five some, seconds. Uh, yeah, five seconds. I think we're excited about all the gro ground floor opportunities in, in, in this space, particularly starting with enterprise uh, blockchain. And we're hoping that other people can also get, excited and uh, our, that our contagious uh, enthusiasm for this is, is something that uh, inspires a lot of people to get involved. Okay. Well, um, on that note, uh, let me thank um, Radhika and Jordan for spending, you know, valuable time with us and giving us this great insights. And uh, hopefully they've excited you about podcast, about uh, blockchain uh, through this podcast as much as, um, you know, that you are going to go explore this further and not only buy their book, but also maybe even if you are an entrepreneur, start a company in that area, or if you are working for large corporations or government, you're going to find a way as to how to make the system more efficient uh, in your organization using the blockchain technology. So with that, your host, Paul Singh, signing off. And thank you very much.
You've been listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We hope you'll tune in for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a good week.